Well, Easter is my favorite Sunday, and for those of us that are Christians, we uh, celebrate Easter because everything, everything we believe hinges not on the Bible, not even on Jesus as a person, uh, but everything we believe hinges on what happened on this day about 2,000 years ago. And there are lots of religions and belief systems, and all these religions and belief systems, uh, they have uh, a book, a prophet, a teacher, uh, values, and uh, all these things, and teachings, all these things. But Christianity, it all hinges on an event, an actual event in history documented by eyewitnesses, and this singular event verified and validated everything that Jesus said and that he claimed to be, and that event is the resurrection. And on Sunday morning, about 2,000 years ago, the primary narrative, most of you know, at least bits and pieces of it, that some of Jesus' followers showed up to mourn his death and take care of his body. Now, why did they do that? Because he was dead. And they expected him to do what dead people do, stay dead. And if you're not a Christian or if you're not a Bible person, and maybe you're only joining us to make your mom or your grandma happy, uh, if you tend to think Christianity is a made-up religion, you need to understand no one would make up a religion like this because they, all the writers make themselves look like cowards and idiots, and no one anticipated the resurrection. No one. I say every year that no one was standing outside the tomb on Sunday with banners and signs doing a countdown, 10, 9, 8. Nobody was doing that because nobody expected this. And if you're someone in the first century Mideast trying to make up a religion or try to make up or build a movement, you would never write it this way. Because we're told not only was no one outside the tomb, but the first two to go to the tomb were women. And what you need to understand is in this culture, women had very little value. They, they couldn't own land. Most of them couldn't read. They could never testify in court, even if they were eyewitnesses to a murder. And so this, you wouldn't tell the story this way. And soon Jesus appeared to them, we're told. And then Jesus appeared to Peter and John and then to the other disciples. And Luke tells us then over a period of the next few days that Jesus reveals himself, shows himself, and 500 people, over 500 people, saw a living, walking, talking, resurrected Jesus, which explains why instantaneously, overnight, these individuals went from being in hiding and being afraid and feeling like there's a target on their back to suddenly being willing to be arrested and even killed, not for some teaching, but for what they saw, a man that was thoroughly dead, now alive and walking around. And what we discover is, as we dig in, is there's a backstory to all of this that is also very important. And thanks, thanks to two individuals, two individuals, generations of Christians for 2,000 years have confirmation that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because without these two, Jesus would have risen from the grave. He would have risen from the dead in a mass grave in a garbage dump just outside of Jerusalem in a valley called the Valley of Gehenna. Gehenna is often translated in the New Testament as hell. It's where this whole imagery of what hell is like comes from. And it was a horrible place where garbage burned all the time. It smelled horrible. There were rats and there were maggots everywhere. And whenever a man was crucified, the Romans forbade any family members or friends from taking the body and giving it a proper burial. Instead, when a person was crucified, they left it on the cross to rot. 
as a, as a warning to anyone that would try to go against Rome. Eventually, they would pry this rotted corpse off of the cross, put it in a wagon with other, other dead bodies. They would cart it down to the valley of Gehenna, and they would just dump it in this mass grave. No one was allowed to mourn their death. It was like they never existed and like they'd never lived. And that's what would have happened for the body, to the body of Jesus, except if it weren't for these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, or Nick and Joe for short. And as you're going to see, they're kind of the heroes of the story, but not because of their faith, because they didn't really have very much faith in Jesus at all. In fact, all the heroes of faith, the people that we think are so great, Peter, James, John, they all fled, and they all went into hiding. It was we were wrong, not special, we were fooled, Jesus is dead, we're never going to see him again, and now there are targets on our backs. And again, if you're making all this up, you don't write yourself in the, the story as cowards, right? Now, let me go back and tell you the backstory of Nick and Joe. It begins early in the ministry of Jesus. There was a group of people that most of you have likely heard of, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the leaders. Their full-time job was being good. If you went to a Pharisee and asked, what's your job? My job is just to be good so that if God ever decides to say or do anything, I'll be one of the first to hear or know it because I'm so close to God because I'm that good. And the Pharisees could not stand Jesus because of what he taught, because he wouldn't keep their rules, and because the people loved him, because the people were so sick and tired of the Pharisees and trying to live up to all the rules that they kept giving them to try and live, live by. But there was this tiny little breakaway group of Pharisees that thought just maybe, just maybe Jesus is in fact from God. And this little breakaway group would talk to amongst themselves in private, hoping that none of the other Pharisees would overhear them. And two of these Pharisees were named Nicodemus and Joseph. So this little subgroup of Pharisees had been watching and listening to Jesus teach, and they're like, you know, we don't understand, understand half of what he says, and he does these miracles, so we know he's from God, but he doesn't keep our traditions, and, and we just don't know, we don't want to write him off, but we're afraid to follow him. We need to ask him some questions, and so somehow Nicodemus was chosen to go to Jesus on behalf of this group and ask some questions. And this is in John chapter 3, if you want to follow along, verse 1. Uh, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's like, in his nation, a senator, okay? So he had a lot of authority, a lot of influence in the community. They tracked Jesus down, and because they didn't want anybody to know, he didn't want anybody to know, he came to Jesus at night. Rabbi, we, a group that has been watching you, we that are beginning to believe, but we've still got so many questions, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. We, we don't know what that relationship is, but no one could perform the signs if you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus, unlike all the rest of our peer group, we have a good attitude, okay? We're not trying to trick you like they are. And just as he's about to ask his big question to, of Jesus, Jesus does this thing that he often did. Jesus answers the question before it gets asked. Now, this is very irritating, Okay, because there's no doubt Nicodemus and his posse like worked a long time because they've heard about it, Jesus and how he does this stuff and shaping this question just the way that, that he wants to ask it. But just before Nicodemus can ask the question, Jesus replied, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nick's like, great, they told me this might happen. I should have got it out quicker. And he answered the question that everyone wanted to know, that at some point, you're going to want to know. And the question is, how do I ensure that God and I are good? That God will be with me and for me now and when I die, that there's something good for me waiting for me? How can I know I matter to God? How can I know that God likes me? Is there any way in this life to have assurance as to where I stand with God? And Jesus says that there is. But the only way to lay your head on your pillow at night and know that things are right between me and God is to be, and then he uses a term that's become come so loaded, you must be born again. And see, that this term came from Jesus. And Nicodemus, now he's all flustered. Jesus has thrown him off script because Jesus, he kind of liked to mess with people. He had a sense of humor. And so he's like, okay, how? How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, which you can't really think about very long. It's just kind of gross. But his point is, Jesus, I, I had a very serious question, okay? And I got to go back and I got to report and answer. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, that's all real clear, right? The flesh gives birth to flesh. Okay, dogs have dogs. Cats have cats, even though they're evil. People have people. And Nicodemus is going, okay, I, okay that part I understand. But Jesus, what Jesus is saying, because God is spirit, for there to be a birth into the kingdom of God, the Spirit of God, must be part of that. And there has to be a new birth experience, a spiritual birth. And this was hard for Nicodemus because his whole view of God was how, some, how many of you view God. That God is somehow like Santa Claus with a list of things that you better not do, a naughty and nice list, and God's watching all the ways that we're being bad or good, and whether or not we're going to get coal in our stocking, or whether or not we get to go to heaven based on our behavior. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as you were physically born as a son to your physical parents, and nothing can ever make you not a physical son of your physical parents, you can and must have an internal spiritual rebirth that takes place that connects you to God in such a way that can never be disconnected. You must be born again. So Jesus is where we get this term. Spirit gives birth to spirit, and you should not be surprised by me saying you must be born again because you're a leader. Yet Nicodemus was so confused. How can this be, he said. I mean, my whole life is just, I've tried to please God by doing everything right and by being good enough and being perfect and obedient as much as I can. But you're, you're telling me that there's something bigger than that, something beyond that, that just as I was born to my parents, I can have a birth experience into God's family. And then Jesus identifies the universal problem. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven. And the reason this is the universal problem is because this is what we need. We need somebody to go there, find out what we need to do, and then come back and tell us. Because otherwise, it's just like we're guessing all the time, and we just make things up and to, to make ourselves think or determine that I'm being good enough. And Jesus, I imagine with a smile, says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, 
the Son of Man. And now Nicodemus becomes very uncomfortable because Jesus has just claimed something about himself that borders on blasphemy. But again, before Nick can say anything, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What? Now see, for us, it may be a little confusing, but for Nick, this was a flashback for his people to hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. The nation of Israel has left Egypt. They're headed to the promised land. There are hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of people. And one night, they stop in this particular area. They set up their tents and their sleeping bags, and they build campfires. They get their guitars out. It's a big, giant camp out. They go to bed that night. And it turns out that the area that they're camping in is infested by snakes. And apparently these snakes only come out at night and they get into their tents. They get into everything. They're venomous and they're biting men and women and children and babies. And people are getting sick and they're dying. And someone goes and wakes up Moses and says, Moses, there are snakes everywhere. What do we do? And then Moses turns to God. God, what do we do? And then God says, okay, I want you to, to get a giant pole And I want you to make a bronze snake, and I want you to put the snake on top of the pole, and anyone who looks at the snake will be healed. It's like, what? Like, just like, but see, here's the thing. When you don't have many options, we know in pain or fear, we are willing to do a lot of odd things, okay? Okay. So they erect this pole, they put the snake on it, and people did what they were told, and they looked at the, the serpent. And because they were just willing to trust God in this seemingly silly thing, the Old Testament says that they were healed and they lived. And this is an intense story. You should read it on your own. I've left a lot of details out. But Nicodemus knows this story. And so Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here's the key that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you came to ask, how do I get eternal life? How do I gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven? How do I know for sure that God and I are good? You thought it was about everyone who behaves enough. Jesus says, no, it's not about everyone who behaves. It's about everyone who believes. It's an internal thing that then begins to work its way to the outside. It is a spiritual rebirth. It's through trusting me. It's through trusting God. It's something that might sound so silly and impotent as choosing to look at a bronze snake to be saved just because that's what God told you to do. But this is the key. And then the conversation ends. And Nicodemus goes back to his group and gathers them around. They're like, okay, how do we know? How do we know for sure we're good with God and we've got entrance to the kingdom of heaven? How do we know that we've got eternal life? And Nicodemus is like, all right, y'all better sit down, okay? This is going to take a while. And to the best of his ability, he explains to them all that Jesus said, but there's still so many questions. So they continue to watch and follow Jesus, but publicly they pretend like they're not interested. And time goes on, and Jesus gets more and more popular. Thousands and thousands of people are showing up everywhere he goes, and the Pharisees and the religious people and leaders are just getting so jealous, and they're worried. They're worried about what's going to happen to their authority and their position and their influence, and they have a meeting. They decide, you know what? This is enough. We need to arrest him. We need to bring him here, question him, trick him, lock him up, get rid of him, 
And the Romans allowed the Jewish leaders to have like a really little army. It was called the Temple Guard. They were small, but they had weapons. Uh, so they send them out about lunchtime to go and arrest Jesus. He'll be easy to find. Just look for the crowd. He'll be right in the middle of it. They sit down, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. They eat some lunch. They take a nap. They play some cards. They're waiting all day. And finally, hours later, they look out, and here comes the Temple Guard, but no Jesus. The Pharisees asked them, what, what is happening? Why didn't you bring him in? We had lunch, we played cards, we took a nap, we gave you all day. Why didn't you arrest him and bring him in? To which the guards replied, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They're like, you listened to his sermon? Like, what's wrong with you? There, well, there was this big crowd and we didn't want to interrupt, so we just sat down a little distance away and we were listening. And it's like, he, he makes sense. It's like, wow. And Pharisees are just like, are you serious? You have been deceived also. We can't even trust the temple guard. And then they ask a question that makes Nicodemus and Joseph really uncomfortable because they're at this meeting. The Pharisees say, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Look, idiots, we're the smart guys, okay? We know everything. We are the law keepers. Do you know anybody that's part of the Pharisees that believe anything this guy says, you bunch of morons? Would you, why would you believe something the mob, the ignorant people believe? They are deceived and will follow anybody, but we know this man can't possibly be from God. And at this point in the meeting, Nicodemus cuts his eyes to Joseph. Joseph kind of cuts his eyes to the other guys that are part of this little internal group. It's kind of like, should, should we say something? They all look at Nicodemus, and finally he speaks up. and He's like, okay, I, I'm not saying I like him. I'm not saying I'm with the ignorant mob. I'm just asking. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Like, I'm just saying. Shouldn't we at least ask him some questions to, to just, instead of just writing him off and arresting him? And this drives the Pharisees crazy, the rest of them. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Which was just so condescending. Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. See, they knew that the Messiah should and would come from the town of David, the city of David, the town of Bethlehem. Now see, we all know the Christmas story, Right? Jesus grew up in Galilee, so he's considered a Galilean. Just like I was born in Parsons, Kansas, which is exactly in the middle of nowhere, but I live, I'm considered to be from Wichita. Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, but they didn't know that. He grew up and, and came from Galilee, so as far as they were concerned, he was from Galilee, which means there's no way that he could be the Messiah. So they have this big meeting. They're super, super mad at Nicodemus, who is starting to appear a little bit like a gullible traitor. There's this intense climax of the meeting, and then they just go home. Like, now they're just frustrated. And this is where the story begins to pick up momentum, because Nicodemus spoke up just a little bit. But now he goes back under the radar, because he saw the intensity of the response, but he continues to follow Jesus. So soon after, uh, Jesus is in a group, and they publicly catch a woman in the act of adultery, in this adulterous relationship, and they're going to stone her. And Jesus, through this whole conversation, ends up scaring off all of them. He watches as they, he walks over to her, says, you've sinned, you're a sinner, but I don't condemn you. Quit sinning. 
You're hurting yourself. It's like he thinks he has the power to forgive sin, and then he heals a man that's been blind from birth, and it's just awesome. This healed man totally humiliates the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's an amazing story in John chapter 11, and Nicodemus and Joseph, they witness this whole thing, and then the tipping point is when one of Jesus's best friends, Lazarus, gets sick, and they hear that they sent word to Jesus for him to come and heal his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus, so they go ahead and they head to the town, but Jesus still hasn't shown up. Four days after Lazarus has been dead and buried, Jesus finally shows up, and there's this, all this drama. It's like, I thought you were his friend. I, you healed strangers, but you wouldn't come heal your friend. And, and Nicodemus and Joseph, they stand at the back of the crowd as they watch as Jesus goes and stands in front of the tomb and just weeps. And he says a short prayer. And then Jesus says the unthinkable, remove the stone, remove the stone that's blocking the tomb. In the King James Version, it says they responded, but Jesus, it stinketh. Okay, he's been there four days. We don't want to open it up. But Jesus insists, remove the stone. And they do. And then Jesus calls out a man that has been four days dead, back to life. And people just go crazy. Some people fall on their knees and worship him and proclaim that he's the Messiah. But the Pharisees gather and say, that's it. This ends now. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And Nicodemus and Joseph and their friends, they watch as the Pharisees go into a full court press to get rid of of Jesus. They hire people to tell lies about him. You, uh, they put together the temple guard one more time, and they go, okay, you bunch of morons. You've got one more chance. We're going to send you to a garden. Can you handle this? It'll be night. It'll be Jesus and just 11 of his followers. One of his followers has betrayed him. He's going to lead you to Jesus. He's going to kiss him on the cheek because it's going to be dark. Arrest the guy that he kisses on the cheek and bring him here. Can you handle this? And Nicodemus and Joseph know about this plot. And you know what they did? Nothing. Because we find out later they're so afraid of the religious leaders and what people might think. And they were there the night that the temple guard illegally dragged Jesus from the garden to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. They watched as he was tried and convicted at night in an impromptu court that was completely illegal with paid off witnesses. And they were there as they took him to Pilate who brought him in, asked Jesus some questions, came back out, says, okay, this guy hasn't done anything worthy of death. And they go, no, he must be crucified. And there's this big argument. And then Pilate is afraid that there's going to be a riot. And I've been in Israel. I've been in Jerusalem. And to this day, it's just like a powder keg. So you begin to understand like anything can set off this city. So he decides, here's what I'll do. I'll just beat this guy within an inch of his life, and then I'll bring him out. And when I bring him out all bloody and ragged, they'll go, okay, okay. He, he's been punished enough. Let him go. And so Pilate has Jesus scourged and flogged to the, which, to the point where most men didn't survive. And then he brings Jesus out, his skin ripped and torn and hanging from his body. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and their little group watch as Jesus staggers to the edge of those steps. And Pilate says, there is no reason to put this man to death. Look at him. 
He has been thoroughly punished. But somebody in the crowd yells, crucify him. Crucify him. And they're sitting there, they're watching this, and this chant is being picked up by the crowd, crucify him. And Pilate says, do you want me to crucify your king? And one of the chief priests replies, we have no king but Caesar, which was a blasphemous thing for a Jewish man to say. But now they have pitched Jesus as an enemy of Caesar when they say, we have no king but Caesar. You take him. And crucify him. I wash my hands of this man's blood. And Nicodemus and Joseph and their group and Mary and Martha and their friends, the friends of Jesus are just, they're in shock. They're in utter disbelief. This can't be happening. How can it he be, they be not only on the verge of putting him to death, but on the verge of crucifying the man who is obviously from God. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're at the edge of that crowd and they watch as Jesus takes a portion of his cross and drags it to Golgotha. And they're there in the back of the crowd looking over the heads of the people as they hear the nails being pounded, piercing flesh and bone. And the cries of the agony to the people on Jesus' left and right that are being crucified along with him. Can you imagine the confusion Peter has run away and disappeared. His disciples are in hiding and given up hope, abandoning Jesus. And there stands Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and a few of the Pharisees that had, had hoped he was for real. And as they look over the heads of the crowd, they see the head of Jesus being hoisted up to be placed on that vertical stake in the ground. And that's when it dawned on them. Oh my God. This is what he meant. This is what he predicted. It's part of a bigger story. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone, not who behaves, not who is perfect, who believes may have eternal life in him. And suddenly it clicked. And their world shifted. And as educated Jewish men, part of what they had memorized from childhood were the prophecies of Isaiah. Because hundreds of years before, Isaiah prophesied that one day there would be a Messiah that would come and deliver Israel. But part of the difficulty was that Isaiah said that the Messiah would suffer and that he would be beaten and suffer at the hands of men. And the Jewish people couldn't understand how could someone sent from God, especially the Messiah, ever suffer? But as they stood there watching Jesus being hoisted up on that cross, the prophecy of Isaiah written 750 years earlier surely sounded off in their minds. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they must have stood in shock and awe, speechless, 
as they saw before their very eyes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and realized that Jesus was, in fact, sent from God, not on behalf of a nation, but on behalf of all mankind to take upon himself the sin of the world. And that's when Nicodemus and Joseph decided we can hide no longer. We can no longer be secret followers of Jesus after they watched him bleed to death and die on a cross, proven by the fact that a Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear. And it was then they did the unthinkable. John tells us that later Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate himself and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And John gives us a little commentary. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, Getting a body was not unprecedented. If you had enough money, you could bribe your way into getting the body of a crucified loved one, but you had to pay a lot. And generally, you would go to a Roman officer or you would go to the guy that was driving the cart down to Gehenna to dump the bodies and bribe them. But it was unthinkable to go to the very person that, whom had someone that you cared about crucified to come out openly and go, I care so much for that criminal that I would like for you, Pilate, to give me permission, to give me authority to take his body. Mark tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Generally, people, again, hung on the cross for days. But remember, Jesus had been beaten and flogged and nearly bled to death before he ever got to the cross. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And then John tells us Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. But now they are out in the open. They have gone public and and just decided from this point on, we don't care what people think about us. We just saw the Son of Man, the Son of God, give His life in a way that we all missed right up until the last moment. John tells us Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So what they would do is they would clean and wash the body the best they could. Then they would wrap it in all of these spices uh, so that as it decayed, there wouldn't be the immediate stench of death. But by the time they finished embalming the body this way, there was an additional 100 pounds or more of weight now on this body, and it would cover them from head to toe. So if somebody wasn't dead by this point, they would be dead after because, again, the entire face and head and body are covered and wrapped with all this liquid over 100 pounds. The story continues. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And Matthew tells us this was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, because he's not hiding anymore, a tomb created for himself and his family members. And after working quickly, because Passover was coming, they removed the wedge from the rolling circular stone They rolled the stone in place, they sealed the tomb, and they left. Why? Because Jesus, who came from God, was crucified, and he was dead. There was no hope in ever seeing him alive again. But it was their faith and their courage and their concern for the body of Jesus that paved the way for first century Christians and every generation after to have confidence that Jesus did in fact die and rise again. 
You see, if, if three days later Jesus had walked in from the valley of Gehenna with garbage all over him and rat bites and he stinks and walks into town like, I'm back, okay, that would have been remarkable, but that would have been explainable. You know, clearly he never died in the first place. But their courageous care for the body proved beyond a shadow of, the, of a doubt that he was in fact dead. Because these men absolutely would have checked for signs of life. Not only was he dead, he was buried, and no one, no one stood outside the tomb, not even his own mother, because no one expected a resurrection. And the following Sunday morning, when the sun rose, the Passovers ended, Mary Magdalene and at least two other women, they go to the tomb, and Mark tells us that the women also brought the things to anoint and embalm and prepare the body for burial. Now, ladies... Why do you think the women brought what they thought they needed to prepare the body for burial? I'm guessing because a couple of men did it, okay? And they clearly will not have done it right. So we're going to do this right, okay? But in their defense, they were in a rush. They were trying to get this done before Passover. And the ladies show up. The stone's been rolled away. And they walk in, and there's no body. And again, if you're making all this up, you never write the story this way. Because the gospel writers tell us they didn't say he is risen. No, they said somebody took the body. They did not expect a resurrection. Later, Peter and John hear that the tomb is empty, and they run to the tomb, and they look inside. And we're told that they were confused. Why? Because they expected Jesus to stay dead. No one assumed the resurrection. No one expected it. And then Jesus appeared alive, whole, resurrected. And he said, guys, don't you remember? I told you. I told you this is what to expect. And the man to whom Jesus said, you must be born again, is the very man who paved the way for generations to know with certainty that Jesus died and rose again. It's because of him and Joseph that we're here today, which makes them the heroes of Easter. It's how they played a part in the story, the story of your salvation and mine as well. Because suddenly, affirmed by the resurrection, there bursts on the scene this whole brand new idea that Jesus brought into the world, that you enter the kingdom of God, you enter a relationship with God, that one day you get to enter heaven, not through your good enough behavior, because you can never be good enough. But by transferring your trust away from whatever else it is that you're putting your trust and hope into, and transferring that ultimately to what Jesus did on your behalf. It's not what we do, it's what he did on our behalf. He gave his life for us. And that's why we celebrate Sunday after Sunday, weekend after weekend, why we lean into and seek to learn and follow and obey the teachings of Jesus our whole lives because of what he's done for us. And if some point something rose up on the inside of you in your past where you felt like, I get it, I, I see that, I, I think, I, I believe that, that's the spirit of God drawing you to him and to the Savior that loves you. And if, if you've not already done so in the past, but you've come to the place, go, what? You know what? Like Nicodemus and Joseph, I've come to believe it. That Jesus was, in fact, from God, sent on my behalf. And though I've still got a lot of questions, I believe that much. 
As we end our time together, I just want to lead us in a, in a prayer. And this prayer is just simply an expression of what Jesus said. It's an opportunity for you to say, I believe. You are my Savior. I accept you as my Savior. And by faith, I believe you will receive me into the family and the kingdom of God. And I'm asking to be born again from the inside in a way that will make its way to my behavior on the outside as I become a permanent part of your family. If you've never done that or if you're not sure that you have done that, I'd just like for you to mark this day by doing that. I'd just love for you to pray with me. You can pray it in your heart and, and you can pray it out loud, but this might be the day that you look back on the rest of your life, life and say, Easter 2021, that's when I transfer my trust from me being good enough to what Jesus did on my behalf. And to help you out, I'm just going to ask every Christian, every Jesus follower in this room, even those you can do this, join us online to, to help out, to, to, to pray with me, to repeat after me, uh, to pray out loud as a reaffirmation of your faith that maybe you've had for a few weeks or maybe for decades. So would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And if you believe, whether brand new or for a long time, just repeat these words after me. Heavenly Father, I believe you are my Father. I believe Jesus was your Son, who you sent to die for my sins. I place all of my trust in what he did on my behalf. I'm not trusting my behavior, promises, or good intentions. I'm not tr trusting my church attendance or even in my prayers. I'm placing all of my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin. Receive me into your family and kingdom in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, I know you hear all of our internal and external prayers and the prayers of people in this room and online and how awesome to be able to celebrate new life and new birth with them and to, be, to celebrate something that maybe we, we embraced long ago. But Father, I pray that we would always be a church that reflects this one simple, incredible, life-changing world event, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died not simply for the sins of the world, but for my personal sins and for each of us as well. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.